Chapter thirty one of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty one The Last of Earth. Frequent allusion has been made in past chapters to the eagerness with which Miss Dix seized every opportunity to extend the blessings of a rational and humane treatment of insanity into all quarters of the world. Very pleasant, then, is it to narrate one more happy result of these widespread efforts, the knowledge of which came to her as late as in 1875. Years before, when first a chargé d'affaires was sent to Washington from Japan to represent its interests before the United States government, had she sought his acquaintance, and held long and earnest interviews with him on the subject that lay nearest her heart. Fortunately, in Jugoi Arenori Mori, she found a man of great intellectual capacity and large humanity. Readers of this biography will recall the shock produced in the minds of all true friends of Japan by his assassination a year or more ago in his own country at the hands of a fanatic. He had by that time become acknowledged as the foremost statesman in his native land. From him came to Miss Dix in 1875 a letter which was one more illustration of the wisdom of a favorite maxim with her, so beside all waters. Quote, Tokyo, Japan, November 23, 1875. My dear Miss Dix, during the long silence, do not think I have been idle about the matter in which you take so deep an interest. I have given the subject much of my time and attention, and have successfully established an asylum for the insane at Kyoto, and another in this city is being built and will soon be ready for its work of good. Other asylums will follow, too, and I ardently hope they will be the means of alleviating much misery. Very truly yours, Arinori Mori. End quote. Two more asylums in faraway Japan, with others very likely to follow, were now to be added to the thirty two she had already been the instrument of either founding outright or greatly enlarging. She was accustomed to mark each one on a map with the sign of the cross. Could all the prisons on new and better plans she carried bills for, and all the almshouses she caused to be thoroughly reconstructed be added to these, and then all brought vividly before the mind's eye, how amazing would be the impression left. It was noted by benevolent minds in these latter days of Miss Dix's career that whenever any great calamity occurred, like the terrible fires which destroyed such large portions of Chicago and Boston, she was sure soon to appear on the spot with sums of money she had collected from her many friends 
and quietly and judiciously searching out for herself where help was most needed or what persons already on hand could be relied on to expend the fund most wisely would seek to do her part in mitigating the widespread distress not human beings alone but the brute creation likewise appealed to her unfailing compassion thus among her other projects of relief in these days was that of setting up a drinking fountain in a densely thronged part of boston where she had noticed that the draught horses were subjected to the hardest work it was her application to the poet whittier to send her the translation of an arabic inscription cut on the curb of a similar fountain in the east an inscription the beauty of which had struck her when he had repeated it on a previous occasion which called out from him the ensuing letter quote, okno eighteenth eighth month eighteen seventy nine my dear friend i cannot recall the arabic inscription i referred to for the fountain and have written one myself taking it for granted that the fountain was to be thy gift though thee did not say so such a gift would not be inappropriate for one who all her life has been opening fountains in the desert of human suffering who to use scripture phrase, has passed over the dry valley of Baca, making it a well. With love and reverence, thy friend, John G. Whittier. Stranger and traveler, drink freely and bestow a kindly thought on her who bade this fountain flow, yet hath for it no claim save as the minister of blessing in God's name. End quote. Whatever the strength, however, or whatever the power of the inspiring motive, there must come an end to every mortal tether. In October 1881, worn out with fatigue, Miss Dix went for rest to one of her hospital homes, the Trenton, New Jersey Asylum, which she was destined never again to leave previous to this the last characteristic glimpse of her is caught in the following account related by dr george f jelly former superintendent of the mclean asylum she arrived at my house in boston said in substance dr jelly after nightfall one bitter snowy winter evening she seemed chilled to the marrow and said she would go straight to bed i offered her my assistance in mounting the staircase but she declined every aid the furnace draughts were opened for greater heat a large fire was kept blazing in the grate of her bedroom my wife piled five or six blankets on her and i administered some warming drink spite of all she shivered with cold and would i felt sure succumb to pneumonia she was on one of her tours of inspection and had ordered the carriage to come for her in the early morning nothing could move her to change her plan 
and when morning came she was up and ready to start. It was still a bitter snowstorm. I begged her at least to let me go with her to the station, for I feared she might die before she reached her destination. No, she would go alone. She was used to such things, she said, and as soon as she had got through her work in New England would go farther south, where she always became better soon. Something pathetic and painful is there in such a narrative of exposure in extreme old age. Something sad and hard to be reconciled to in this refusal of so much as the helping hand of a strong man in mounting the staircase on tottering feet. The refusal, too, by one whose long life had been a ceaseless ministry to others. Still, the anecdote is too characteristic to be omitted, revealing as it does such persistence to the end of the indomitable willpower that had led on to such vast achievement. From Trenton, however, there was to be no more going forth. Those thousand-mile journeys from Halifax to Texas, from New York to San Francisco, were now over forever. To the great credit of the managers of the New Jersey State Asylum, no sooner was it known that Miss Dix was seriously ill in the asylum, and unlikely ever again to be strong enough to leave it, than they called a meeting and passed a unanimous vote, inviting her to end her days under the roof of the institution she had founded as its loved and revered guest. The managers of this institution had always manifested toward her singular gratitude and respect. Roomy and comfortable apartments were assigned her, where she preferred they should be, under the pediment of the great Greek portico which forms the façade of the main building, apartments commanding a superb view of the park-like grounds, the open country, and the beautiful sweep of the Delaware River. The private resources of Miss Dix would at this time have amply sufficed to maintain her in comfort during her declining years, but it was an indication of her high self-respect of character that she should have felt the fitness of thus ending her days as the honored guest of one of the many institutions she had founded rather than in any private house. For half a century she had had no home, but had been in every fiber of her being a public character. The asylums were her children, and that, when worn out and incapacitated for farther service, one of these children should thus take her and care for her beneath its roof-tree, seemed to her but in the natural order of family love and duty. Moreover, the passion of doing for others had become absolute in her nature. She had a large list of dependents for whose wants she was always providing, and the one luxury that remained to her was the power of being able to continue this to the end. 
beyond the grave even stretched the longing to be still of use on earth an intense solicitude had now taken possession of her to preserve unbroken the capital of her property and to leave it in trust so that the income of it should be devoted in perpetuity to charitable objects thus the instinct of saving which in extreme old age is the almost invariable accompaniment of human nature assumed in her case the character of what had ever been the master passion of her life for more than five years miss dix was now destined to linger on in her hospital home they were years of great suffering from exhaustion and the pain of the steadily advancing disease of which she died ossification of the lining membranes of the arteries imprisonment within the narrow walls of her rooms came doubly hard to her as always to overpoweringly active natures still no complaint escaped her lips it was all right it should be so she said it was god's will only it was hard to bear life had at no period seemed child's play to her but a stern though merciful ordeal her bible and collections of sacred poetry were now her stay and comfort in hymns especially the utterance of the suffering and triumphant ones of all the ages she heard the voices that came home to her with the greatest power and peace never a letter she wrote to dear friends with trembling hand that did not contain some of these cherished lines meanwhile old friends did not forget her from far places they would travel to spend an hour with her while the older superintendents of asylums kept her duly informed of all that was going on in the world in which she had so long lived or sent her from their annual meetings greetings of respect and love a few of the letters that came to her in the asylum home will serve to make vivid the nature and sweetness of the consolations that helped her through these last five years of imprisonment weariness and pain they came in great numbers alike from private and well-known persons december thirty first eighteen eighty two writes nightly dr kirkbride as follows quote, in three hours more eighteen eighty two will belong to the past may that which follows it bring to you my most valued and honored friend all the happiness that can come from a life devoted to good works and to the relief of the afflicted shortly after comes greeting from her once pupil and lifelong friend mrs john kebler of cincinnati Quote, i never think of you as grown old you always come to me as I knew you first, crowned with rich brown hair, the like of which no one else ever had. Of all your pupils, I am sure none loved you as I did and do. 
Few days of all my life have been unblessed by loving, grateful thoughts of the gracious, graceful teacher and friend. Always shall I connect with you, if I remain longer than you, that lovely hymn of Whittier, and my prayer shall be, Still, let thy mild rebukings stand between me and the wrong, and thy dear memory serve to make my faith in goodness strong. End quote. May 6, 1882, arrives a remembrance of cheer and consolation from Mr. Whittier himself. Quote, Oak Knoll, Danvers, Massachusetts. My dear friend, I am glad to know that thou art with kind friends and as comfortable as possible under the circumstances. Thou hast done so much for others that it is right for thee now, in age and illness, to be kindly ministered to. He who has led thee in thy great work of benevolence will never leave thee nor forsake thee. With a feeling of almost painful unworthiness, I read thy over-kind words as regards myself. I wish I could feel that I deserve them, but compared with such a life as thine, my own seems poor and inadequate. But nonetheless do I thank thee for thy generous appreciation. May the blessing of our Father in heaven rest upon thee, dear friend. Believe me always and gratefully, thy friend, John G. Whittier. End quote. Of course, so old and tried a friend, so kindred a spirit with her own in love and sacrifice, as Reverend William G. Eliot, D.D. of St. Louis, did not forget her now in her loneliness and pain. From his many letters, let the following short extract and accompanying lines serve to show the loving tenor. Quote, we think and speak of you very often, and in spirit I spend many hours with you daily. Last night, young Mr. Nichols, grandson of your old friend in Portland, was here, and we talked of you an hour. After he left me, I wrote these lines before going to bed. They are a part of the truth, the whole of which cannot be told. If love and gratitude and prayer could save you from all suffering and anxiety, no pain nor loneliness of feeling would ever reach you. Dear sister, in thy lonely hours of suffering and pain, take comfort. The ten thousand prayers cannot ascend in vain from hearts which thou hast comforted, and homes which thou hast cheered, and children saved from ignorance, whose pathway thou hast cleared, from loyal hearts and homes, wherever they are found, and palaces and cottages, with peace and honor crowned. Dear sister, thou art not alone, God's angels hover near, his presence is thy sure defense, then what hast thou to fear? The good fight thou hast nobly fought, and truly kept the faith. The crown awaits thee, sister dear, the victory over death. 
Take courage then, dear friend, the prize is almost won. Hark, tis the Saviour's voice we hear. Servant of God, well done. Your brother friend, W. G. Eliot. End quote. Similar testimonials of love and veneration from men and women foremost in all good works throughout the country, as well as from kindred spirits on the other side of the Atlantic, might be indefinitely multiplied. Let them conclude, however, with an extract from a letter of one of the younger men in the Battle of Humanity, General S. C. Armstrong a man who, brave as the bravest throughout the war for the preservation of the Union, as soon as peace sounded, beat his sword into a plowshare and his spear into a pruning hook, and thenceforth labored with the zeal of an apostle to make self-respecting and useful American citizens out of the ignorant and degraded Negro freedmen. In his first effort to reduce to order the chaos and anarchy of the whole region about Hampton, Virginia, and to establish an industrial and Christianizing school of instruction there, he had found no stancher friend or wiser adviser than mystics. Quote, you are one of my heroes, he now wrote to her in her last retreat. My ideal is not one who gives the flush and strength of youth to good work, for who can help doing so when a chance opens? He is a traitor who declines the chance, just as is he who doesn't fight for his country when it needs him, and he can possibly go. But you kept in the field long past your best days. Your grit and resolve have been wonderful. Faithfully yours, S. C. Armstrong. Two years after the death of Mystics, there appeared in the New York Home Journal of September eleventh, eighteen eighty nine, an article embodying reminiscences of her traits of character and of incidents in her career. It was from the pen of a valued personal friend of her earlier years. Mrs. S. C. P. Miller. The picture drawn in it of these last days of Miss Dix's life in her asylum home is at once so touching and so stamped with that exceedingly rare endowment of human beings, the power to see what is actually before their eyes, as to render it a positive addition to any attempt to interpret her character. Quote, Accidentally meeting, says Mrs. Miller, an old-time friend from Washington, she mentioned a recent visit to Miss Dix. Eagerly inquiring about her, I learned that she was a confirmed invalid, occupying apartments in the insane asylum at Trenton, which had been given to her by the state of New Jersey in acknowledgment of her agency in securing the erection of the building. At the earliest moment, I went over to see her, sending up my card, with much misgiving as to her memory of me. Immediately I was taken to her rooms in the tower. 
She was glowing in her welcome. I told them to bring you right up, for I was so impatient to see my friend that I would not wait a minute. She was propped up in bed and greatly altered. She was unable to walk, and for several years had not even been carried outside of her own rooms, and to this utter helplessness were added paroxysms of intense pain. The doctor does not encourage me to hope that I shall ever be better, she told me, but he comforts me with the assurance that I am in no danger of ever losing my reason. She was curious to know whether I would have recognized her, so curious indeed as to embarrass me in the reply that I should not have done so in an unexpected meeting. I seized the occasion to say, you should be at the pains, Miss Dix, to arrange that you go down to posterity and that beautiful portrait of you in the Athenaeum at Boston. A smile of satisfaction brightened her face at the suggestion, and I was amused to see that even the good and great, the strong and old, possessed, in common with their weaker sisters, a keen relish of a gentle insinuation of personal beauty. It was evident to me that her helplessness did not extend either to her head or hands, for soon I saw that her warmest interest was still flowing in its long-accustomed channel, and that from her sick-room lines of communication ran in every direction to the outside world. She spoke of the gift made to her of her rooms with much gratification. Her sense of home seemed wholly centered in them. The cozy little bedroom opened into a small bright parlor, from the windows of which was an exquisite view of the grounds and distant landscape. Are you strong enough, I asked her on one occasion, to use your pen as in former times? Summoning the nurse, she had some loose sheets handed to me, saying, I wrote these and had them printed by the Indian boys at Hampton, but blank, I can't hold lines long in my memory. They were short hymns, and her difficulty was to frame a verse and hold it in mind until she could get it on paper, either by her own hand or that of another. Footnote. A favorite occupation of Miss Dix throughout life was the writing of hymns. They were devout, heroic, pleading, and submissive, but she possessed in no marked degree the lyric faculty. And footnote. She was unfeignedly interested in good work done by other hands, and her manner in discussing it, that of the fellow laborer, not of the master workman. I never descried the faintest soupçon of such assumption, nor did I ever detect any personal ambition in her great work. She never sought notoriety, not even in the seclusion of her last years, when it would have been so natural for her to entertain me with the exciting scenes of her previous history, did she ever drag in her past enterprises and successes. Present work seemed to fill her mind, 
not her former triumphs. Of course, her friendliness extended to my family. I took my daughters to see her, and under the impulse of her ruling passion, she inquired what schemes of usefulness entered into their young lives. One of them detailed to her the effort she was making to benefit the children in her church. On a subsequent visit, months afterward, she asked how it went on. I pictured its progress with some warmth, she listening sympathizingly and now and then nodding approvingly, when she suddenly exclaimed with a beaming smile, I know S would like to have her fingers in my purse, now wouldn't she? I promptly declined any gift, telling her she already had objects enough of her own to prosecute, but she would not be denied and a crisp new note, so large that I protested against it, was sent with the message that all the agencies of charity, the school, was the most hopeful. It is a mistake that age has power to cast out the evil instincts of human nature. It often intensifies them. Anger and bitterness scowl along the twilight of many a brilliant career, as the dark clouds gather upon the evening horizon of some exquisite day. With Miss Dix, this was not so. Her heated, excited day merged into a quiet, peaceful close. In the full tide of work, she had been called imperious and arbitrary. These traits may have been necessary. Certainly they were powerful aids in the accomplishment of her splendid designs. But as the night drew on, her character mellowed, and all that was most lovable in her nature appeared as her life slowly faded away. She suffered at times agonies of pain, and her ability at self-entertainment lessened rapidly in the last year. She had become extremely deaf. Her sight also was much impaired, and in her increasing bodily feebleness I imagine that her well-stored memory, from which she had drawn so largely for her comfort and refreshment, now often deserted her. Kind friends sought to aid her failing senses by the best helps that science could supply, but in vain. It was pitiful to have her say to me, Try to put this tube in my ear, so as not to pain, and yet allow me to hear what you say. And of her eyes, too, she said in a sort of despairing attempt at cheerfulness, I do not think it right to get such numbers of spectacles that nobody else can use, and which do me no good. I saw her only a few months before her death, when she had become so weak as to allow me to stay only half an hour. Feeble as she was, however, with that singular thoughtfulness for others which never left her, she endeavored to entertain the daughter I had brought with me. As the interview wore on, it became evident to me that she wished to say something confidential and at her suggestion I tried to maneuver the faithful nurse out of hearing. 
failing ignominiously i said oh never mind now tell me when i come again ah yes if i am here if i am here oh i replied quite too warmly i feared to meet her wishes for i thought death would be welcomed by her oh i hope you will be here for many a year to come she started up with agitated eagerness and said with wild excitement my dear friend if you hope that pray for it pray that i may be here i think even lying on my bed i can still do something she fell back upon her pillow exhausted whilst i moved and surprised beyond measure sat down that she might have time to recover her composure i then rose to go she threw her arms round me saying with unwanted tenderness oh darling and i had parted with my old friend forever s c p miller princeton new jersey end quote. constant touches throughout this narrative reveal in mrs miller the genuine observer with the second childhood of extreme old age and the diminishing power of self-restraint almost inevitably does vanity prompt the veteran soldier sailor statesman or traveler to give way to the temptation of rehearsing to others the flattering story of the battles or sea fights he has fought or has won the great debates or perilous adventures in which he has borne a heroic part of all this no trace is found in mystics to her when a thing is done it is done the present absorbs her while it yet offers any good to do aged broken and full of suffering still for all her religious faith for all her yearning after a higher spiritual realm beyond she does not want to die i think even lying on my bed i can still do something the last exclamation too oh darling is the one that occurs over and over again in the broken fragmentary letters she at this period writes to dear friends proving what a world of tenderness underlay that self-controlled adamantine character with which she had fronted the world in her long warfare for the outcast and despised as long as strength lasted it remained the habit of mystics to sit during the declining hours of sunlight at her window feasting her eyes on the beauty of the landscape and communing with him of whom all this visible glory was to her the perpetual manifestation there below her stretched the park-like expanse of the grounds of the asylum and there sitting under the trees or wandering along the paths in the fullest enjoyment of liberty possible to their sad condition were the poor children of affliction whose former miseries in chains and cages had first started in her the vow of consecration never to the end to be broken now in contrast could she look down on them 
ministered to by the uttermost that could be done by science, humanity, religion, and the healing charms of nature. And yet in the hours of reverie to which this visible scene must inevitably have led on, how equally distinctly to imagination must there have often risen before her mind's eye in twenty different states stretching over half a continent in america from the pines and maples of newfoundland to the live oaks and palmettos of louisiana as well as in europe and in faraway japan the repetition of the same blessed picture he whom she had so loved and followed the son of man who came not to be ministered unto but to minister how often in those sacred hours must she have felt the fullness of his benediction i was an hungered and ye gave me meat i was thirsty and ye gave me drink i was a stranger and ye took me in naked and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. The end came on the evening of July 17, 1887. For a month she had grown steadily weaker. Still with her habitual fortitude, and that desire to pass unobscured through the portal of death so characteristic of believing natures, she had begged her dear friend, Dr. Ward, to avoid the use of anodynes, and to tell her distinctly when the last hour was at hand. This was not to be. Although Dr. Ward had given her his pledge that he would apprise her as soon as he saw the end nearby, it came as unexpectedly to him as to her he was sitting at the tea-table when the nurse suddenly ran down to report that miss dix was sinking away rapidly mounting the stairs on opening the door just as his eye fell on her she breathed a quiet sigh and all of earth was over the burial took place in Mount Auburn Cemetery near Boston, Massachusetts, occurring when, in the height of the summer heats, so many are away at the seashore or in the mountains, a few friends only, among them Dr. John W. Ward, Dr. Charles H. Nichols, and Mr. Horace A. Lamb stood by the grave communicating to her English friends the intelligence of her last illness and death, Dr. Nichols, who had been so long and intimately associated with her throughout her great career, closed with these words his letter to Dr. D. Hack Took, quote, Thus has died, and been laid to rest in the most quiet, unostentatious way, the most useful and distinguished woman America has yet produced. End of chapter 31